If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think this think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let us pray. Father, as we open your word tonight, oh how I pray that you would use it mightily for your glory. I pray that you would take what I have put in and take out, that it might truly bless your people tonight. But more important, may we understand the truths that you have written in this section of Scripture by the hand of your servant Paul who gave himself for you in all that he did. Amen. Tonight we want to examine the title of my sermon, which is Teaching Others to Teach Others. And the big picture or theme tonight is Teaching Others Requires Perseverance, Discipline and patience, but the harvest is satisfying. The last time we visited the book of 2 Timothy, we looked at the superiority of the, of the gospel and how Timothy was not to be ashamed of either the testimony of our Lord nor of Paul his beloved spiritual father. And we concluded that section with the importance of imitating godly people who exemplified this very truth that the superiority of the gospel is worth suffering for. After Paul writes that first chapter, he kind of makes a pivot because now we come to chapter 2 and we find the writer exhorting Timothy to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and exhorting him to entrust to faithful men the things he had learned from him over the many years that they had ministered together in the gospel. So they in turn would teach others in verses 1 and 2. 
Then Paul uses three illustrations to bring home this to his younger protege, what it will take to accomplish the task of teaching others in verses 3 through 6. Finally, Paul urges Timothy to think over what he has communicated to him, assuring him that the Lord would provide understanding in everything. So, let's first look at the twofold exhortation to Timothy in verses 1 and 2. First, we find these words from Paul exhorting Timothy be to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as we look at this word strengthen, we know that this strengthening is not something we possess of ourselves. It's not of our natural abilities or our intelligence, our analytical prowess, or our oratorial mastery, nor anything else from within ourselves. This strengthening that Paul is talking about comes from outside of ourselves. It is the strengthening that empowers and enables or to be strengthened inwardly. The source is from outside of us. And so what is that that we're talking about? Well, we're talking about grace. Grace is the element used for our strengthening. Not just some common grace one might experience with another person, but it's a supernatural grace. This grace is the unmerited favor of our God and Lord, a grace that saves, sustains, and infuses hope for the future. In other words, it is a grace that is sufficient, which the Lord Jesus declared to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul was in dire straits because he had a thorn in the flesh. And he pleaded with the Lord three times. And yet the Lord said this, My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient because in your weakness I am made strong. And so, in his hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton brings out these glorious attributes attributes of grace. First, he proclaims the amazing this amazing grace saves. He then states it taught his heart to fear. And yet, this same grace his fears relieved. Further, this grace brought him through many dangers, many toils and snares, and he had the confidence to say, and this grace will lead me home. Even after 10,000 years, this grace will still cause our hearts to praise the wonders of our God and King. And so we see this wonderful grace. It is the element that the Lord Jesus Christ uses to infuse us 
because the source of the grace is Christ Jesus. Notice the definite articles used here. Not only the grace, but the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Christ is the source of this grace as shown in chapter 1 of John's Gospel where we read starting in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, uh, but grace and truth came through Jesus, our source. We find this same truth of Christ being the source of grace in chapter 15 of the same gospel, John's, where we find that it is Christ who is the one who nourishes and strengthens us. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is Christ Jesus, the vine, who supplies us as we are abiding in Him. It is He who infuses us with strength, for a branch, that's us, cannot sustain itself. It will die, it will wither, it will break off, because it has no strength. We are also told to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 3, verses 18, in verse 18. So, we see then that the strengthening comes from the element grace and that the source of that grace is Christ Jesus, our Lord. This illustration I want to use is for Tim. Tim, I believe, was a hydrologist. And I thought about him when I was thinking about this particular um, illustration. Because it's, I, I picture an artesian well. Who knows what an artesian well is besides Tim? Okay? All right. An artesian well is a body of water underground that puddles up. Actually, there could be lakes of it. But that water seeps down through the strata, usually limestone, sandstone, and then gets trapped in between other strata that it cannot penetrate through, like maybe granite or shell. And so you have this pressurization of water in this great big underwater lake. Now the only way to get to that water is to drill down until you get into it. 
But the pressure is so great that it doesn't take a pump to pump it out. It rises on its own and bubbles up and flows and keeps on going. And I picture that as the water being the grace that comes from the source that has all the pressure. The Lord Jesus being that that's between the strata who has the pressure to push it up to where it nourishes and strengthens the earth. So, Paul not only exhorts Timothy to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he then uses the conjunction and to introduce the second half of this exhortation to Timothy. Timothy is now exhorted to take what he has learned from Paul and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And we find the things that Timothy learned from Paul. Well, when Paul came to Timothy's hometown on his second missionary journey around 50 AD, Timothy, a young man, was so well spoken of that probably was saved uh, during Paul's first missionary journey to the point that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him on his journey, which he did. And Timothy spent most of the next decade and a half learning theology and practical living from this mighty man of God, Paul. Paul poured out upon Timothy that which God gave him that he might absorb it and learn to teach others. But also, Paul wanted Timothy to understand what was of first or first most important, and that was the gospel. As Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day in accordance to scriptures. Timothy then was to take these things that he had learned from Paul among many witnesses, and he was to entrust these now to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. Webster's Dictionary defines the word entrust as assign the responsibility to someone. And though this is a good definition, it doesn't go far enough. A better rendering of entrust is to make, an, to make a deposit or an investment in. It's like going to the bank or a brokerage company where you expect it to produce or earn more than what you put into it over time. In other words, your investment would mature is what you're hoping for. And this deposit or investment was to be entrusted to faithful men. And faithful here means to be trustworthy, to be dependable, someone who can be counted on, or to follow through, be consistent, one who endures. And here are two examples of that kind of faithfulness. The first 
man that I want to introduce to you, and you already know who he is. His name is Moses, of which we are told he was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. He was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And we find this to be true in in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. Moses entrusted what God had given him to his servant, Joshua. And we know how God used Joshua in leading his people into the promised land. And he too remained faithful to the end of his life, as written in these words. When he gathered Israel together at the end of his life, he said this to them, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it says, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of God, died, being a hundred and ten years old. Faithfulness produces faithfulness. And that is what Paul is needing of Tim. Timothy to do. The second person is the prophet Elijah. After he ran away from Jezebel and hid himself in the desert, bemoaned the fact that he was the only one left in all of Israel that loved and feared God. And God, of course, ended up, the Lord Yahweh had to put him in his place and say, I don't think so, Elijah. I have 7,000 that has not bowed the knee to Baal. And at that point, the Lord tells Elijah that he is to go to a certain city, to a certain farmer by the name of Elisha, and that he was then to take Elisha and to train him. To teach him. And we find that Elisha was the servant of Elijah for a good ten years. He poured water over his hands. He probably did the dishes. He probably cut the wood. He probably did the laundry. Who knows? But he also was taught by Elijah, a godly faithful man, And we find that after Elijah was taken into glory, that Elisha did more than Elijah ever did because of the blessing of the Lord God. Why? Because a faithful man committed to another faithful man who honored God and lived for him. And so these are the kind of men that Paul is telling Timothy, this is the kind of people that you need to entrust the teaching to. To where then we can continue on. And then we then turn to where these men in turn are able to teach others also, who in turn would teach others, of course, and so on and so forth, through the last millennia, last two millennia. Faithful men have been entrusted with the message of the cross 
to other faithful men. That's how we have been able to receive the message of the cross. It was because faithful men who were trained by faithful men, who were trained by other faithful men, and infused with the strength of the grace that's in Christ Jesus, was they were faithful. And therefore today, you and I have faithful men who preach and teach us, mentor us, disciple us, however you want to put it, they pour their lives into us. They being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and wanting us then also to be the same. So after Paul tells Timothy this, he tells him, three diff- gives him three different illustrations. And these illustrations are first of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. The first is a soldier in verses 3 and 4. The ESV, which we use here at RCG, translates verse 3 this way, share in suffering as a good soldier in Jesus Christ. Because that's what we read. That's the Bible we're using tonight. And I'll admit that I, have, I prefer the rendering that's in the, NS, the NASB, which translates it this way, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It is hardship that soldiers suffer through when they must be a- and they must be able to persevere through it all. This soldier of Paul's day was one who was pretty much deprived of many things. I didn't know it, but they actually had a draft system. And when young men turned 18 years old, they could be drafted into the Roman military. And their service, unlike ours to where I spent two years in regular army people or Marines or Navy, three or four, the Roman soldier was conscripted for between 20 and 25 years. And he had then to be always persevering, war after war, uprising after uprising. But not only that, they were used to build the aqueducts, the highways, the buildings, and many other things that the Roman Empire needed. And so they truly had to persevere. It weren't too many of them that really made it all the way through to retirement. But when they did, they were given a pension, they were given land, and they were set for the rest of their lives. Unfortunately, the lifespan in that time wasn't that great. So if he was conscripted at 18, spent 20, 25 years, okay, so he's going to be around 45, going into 50, he probably only lived a few more years than that. But regardless, he had and they had to persevere as a soldier. I know of a soldier who, during War II, had to endure great hardship and suffering as well. One of these times was during the winter 
1944 and 1945. The American army and its allies were pushing into Germany, but got bogged down due to the to one of the most the worst winters Europe had experienced in many years. It was so cold the ground was frozen as far down as 15 inches. I remember him telling me it was so cold that frost would form even on his sleeping bag when he tried to sleep at night. At one point, his feet were so cold that he couldn't take it. And it was his turn to get into his sleeping bag. He took off his boots. And the next morning, when he woke up, he literally had to thaw his boots out because they had frozen. He had to suffer. This soldier had to persevere because of that. And then above it, they couldn't light any fires because the smoke would give away their positions and the enemy would start throwing in artillery fire into their positions. It was that bad. And yet, they per- he persevered, just like any good soldier of Christ will persevere. You know, a soldier also must be dedicated and be single-mindedness. He does not get caught up in civilian affairs. Paul puts it this way, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Figuratively, entangled means to become involved in an activity to the point of interference with other activities that result in hindering or obstructing the individual's main focus, which is being a soldier. Thus, he exhibits perseverance again, staying away from those pursuits which would hinder his main obligation, and that is to please the one who had enlisted him. Illustration number two is of an athlete found for us in verse five. Paul here is of an athlete. An athlete who is not, the athlete is not crowned as the victor unless he competes according to the rules. In Paul's day, there were two major athletic competitions. One in Athens where the Olympic Games originated. The other one was near Corinth known as the Isthmus Games. According to the history records, each competing athlete reported to the stadium where they spent the next 10 months preparing for the upcoming games. They had to follow a rigorous training regimen, a strict diet, and were not permitted to leave the training facility, period. Their trainers usually were former champions, for they knew what it took to win. There were many rules they had to follow, and if they broke even one, they were disqualified. It took great discipline But to them, the prize, the crowning reef, and the glory they received was worth it. The same training and discipline is required even of us today for athletes. Striving to make the Olympic teams, 
do not qualify unless they play, do, excuse me, even today, Olympic world-class athletes do not make the team unless they are the best of the best. And to be that, they are willing to endure the rigorous training and discipline it takes to make the team. You know, some of you have trained for running contests. Others, triathlons, which is, consists of swimming, biking, and running all in one event. Or some other competition, like swimming or wrestling. Though I doubt that any of you have ever trained for the Ironman triathlon that's held in Hawaii. Now that takes a lot of training, rigorous as well then as extreme discipline. But I am reminded again of what the Apostle Paul says. Because every athlete exercises himself in all things. They do not they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And that's found in first Corinthians chapter nine, verses twenty five through twenty seven. One of my all-time great favorite athletes is Edwin Moses. Does anyone here know who Edwin Moses is? Edwin Moses was an American world-class athlete who knew what it took to compete at that level. Edwin Moses won the Olympic gold medal in the 400-meter hurdles in both the 1976 and the 1984 Olympic Games. The United States boycotted the Olympic Games in 1980, so Edwin was unable to defend his title. However, between 1977 and 1987, Edwin won 107 consecutive finals. He didn't lose a race. He was so disciplined in his training that he would use a tape measure to make sure the hurdles were positioned exactly where they needed to be. And then he trained himself to take the exact number of strides it would be up to the hurdles then launch himself over without having then to do a staggered step like so many other athletes do, which cost them time in the race. And yet, Edwin Moses, the athlete, knew what discipline meant. The third illustration is that of the hardworking farmer. Paul here says of the hard-working farmer is ought to have the first share of the crops. The phrase the hard-working farmer means to exhibit great effort, effort and exertion 
and the phrase ought to have the first share of the crops means needful or necessary. He deserved that because he did the work. This verse provides us with a picture of what it takes to be a farmer. It indicates what farmers go through before they can enjoy the fruits of their labor. Let's take just a moment to see what the process is. Because I grew up in a farming community. And I remember seeing what farmers had to do. And that would be that the first thing they would do to get the ground ready is that they would plow it with great big apparatuses that cut deep into the earth and turned it up. Then they would take disc and behind the disc they would take what would be called a rake and then they would go back over the same ground. The disc would cut up the clods that were made by the plowing. The rake would then even reduce them to smaller amounts or sizes and yet also level out the ground. After that, the farmer then would come in and do what they call cut rows to where these rows would make beds and the crop would be on top of those beds. And then after cutting those, the irrigating process began the watering of the ground so that the seeds would germinate and sprout, causing crop the crop to grow. And once the crop started growing, a process called thinning took place, as well as cultivating the loosening of the ground, then fertilizing and spraying for bugs and all kinds of stuff. And all this is done so it gives the plant planted crop the best chance to reach maturity. Once the crop is mature, the harvest takes place and the farmer can enjoy the fruit of his labor. Great patience is exercised by a farmer at this whole process from beginning to end. Now that's a row crop farmer. And I know there's many other kinds of farmers. There's orchard farmers, wheat farmers, etc. And some of the processes are a bit different. However, it does take patience. I think Tim might understand that because of all of the orange groves that are just a little bit north of Bakersfield on Highway 65. Uh, and in the winter, some winters, it gets so cold that in the middle of the night, these farmers have to get up, get out there, and they, get, they, they got these great big huge heaters, blast furnaces almost, just to get air moving and warm where the fruit, the oranges don't freeze and be ruined. It takes patience. It takes work. And so, as Paul concludes his illustrations of what it takes to be a teacher, he makes an appeal as well as a promise to Timothy. And that is, this is the appeal. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The appeal Paul's appealing to Timothy is for him to think over, to consider, to discern, to be open-minded and grasp the truth of what he has just told him. And that is being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, entrusting to faithful men the things you have heard and learned from me, 
so they in turn are able to teach others also and grasp hold of the truths I use by illustration. But there is also a promise. And that promise is this, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Notice the definite article that is used here by Paul. The Lord will. Imperative. It will happen as you think about what it takes and understand it. The Lord will give you that insight needed for you to be able then to teach others. You know, we have seen in this passage that teaching others requires perseverance, discipline, and patience. But the harvest truly is satisfying. When you see those who taught you or are teaching have the light of understanding come on and you realize all your efforts were worth it, didn't it just bless your heart? They got it. They got it. And so, many a student, because of that kind of teaching, went on to be teachers as well. Because of a teacher who exercised perseverance, discipline, and patience in working with them and reaping that reward. And I chose a quote from John Calvin to sum all of this up. We taught in vain if the Lord does not open our understanding. And the commandments would be given in vain if he did not impart strength to perform them. So tonight I appeal to you, for in so many ways we are all teachers We teach one way or another. Whether it be as fathers, mothers, what have you. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you will be able to persevere. You will be able to discipline yourself. You will be able to exercise patience. Because you will have found that reaping the harvest satisfies the soul let us pray father in heaven we come before you and we thank you for your word even even from an individual stammering and stuttering your word is so precious and there are so many truths here may it be then that we would be teachers who could teach others also and understand the cost of it that we might then when we stand before you, that it would be said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. Amen.